0: Have you discovered that you were injured or had uh, some type of sensitivity to something by experiencing the pain or some type of discomfort? Meaning you didn't know that you had that injury or that sensitivity until you felt the pain. Like you discovered it, like a food allergy later in life. Like you eat a thing and then, like, a half hour later, you're like, oh my gosh, my stomach, what happened? Um, well then maybe you're alerted to that food or maybe you gradually discovered a gluten intolerance or dairy or something and your body made you aware like hey we probably shouldn't be eating these foods um, the other day I discovered this like minor little wrist injury in my hand I don't know how it happened I had an orange in my right hand and I threw it into my left and I caught it and for some reason catching it like, made my left wrist feel like it was gonna fall off. It hurt so bad, it doesn't hurt. It didn't hurt in any other circumstance. I, like, I would push down on it in the wrong way and it would hurt so bad but it didn't hurt any other way. And that was the only way I knew that I had an injury was just doing some random little combination of moves with my tendons and wrists and it just hurt so bad and that's how I knew something's not right with my wrist. This happens uh, to us in various ways where we didn't know there was an issue and then time, chance, and life bring a scenario where you are kind of forced to become aware of, oh, apparently my foot is hurt or my ankle is hurt or something. Um, Happens with our inner world too, our emotions. Someone says something to you, maybe it's in passing, maybe it's meant to be a joke, maybe it's something kind of passive, maybe it's not even like mean at all, but it just touches a pain point uh, and it hurts and uh, it touches like a sensitivity you have or an injury and it just lights up and you get really mad or you get really sad or offended or defensive. Um, Someone else could have received the exact same comment that you received but they may not react to it the way that you did because they don't have that injury or that sensitivity but you heard the thing that was said and it just like pressed a button and you're like Ow, why did you say that to me? Um, so those reactions, pain, anger, anxiety, sadness, feeling offended or defensive, um, they, can, they can reveal where something is injured or broken or sensitive. Like if you've got an injured ankle, you step on it wrong, it hurts, that's your body's way of telling you, hey, we have an injury. Um, and if someone says something to you, talks about you, about choices that you make, the things that you think... Um, habits that you have something about your life or your body or something, we can get defensive. It can mean we have a a sensitivity that someone is, uh, they're touching a nerve is the phrase that we can use. We found a sensitive area. Something is off, needs healing, keeps getting pressed. And uh, there's an injury that, a sensitivity that I think maybe all of us or most of us have, and we're entering into a season where it is going to be pressed on more and more. And the injury or the sensitivity maybe is around the issue of politics. The, qu- the question that politics considers is this, um, how should our country, our state, or our city be ordered for the good of its citizens? In some way, every bill, every politician, every election, every vote, is somehow or another um, related to answering that question. And when we talk about politics, it's some version of your opinion on how to answer that question. What is good for us as a society? And what happens is we hear someone answer that question or some part of it um, in a way that we disagree with, or they answer that question in a way that of by default, questions the validity or the goodness of what we think about the answer to that question, and we have some type of reaction. Maybe this happens on a, like a social media post from a friend or a family member, uh, maybe something that you read in the news, a conversation you have with a coworker, but someone in some way suggesting what they think is good for the world, it implies that you don 't actually know what is good for society or for humanity. It calls into question your intelligence for your goodness plus we bring in our belief in jesus to this arena and so it kind of adds a whole other element of kind of a, a moral imperative like what jesus says goes we read the bible and so maybe that means that we have to care about this issue or vote this way or something but there's just so much disagreement understatement of the year But it's more than just we think differently on the matter. Um, If it was just disagreement, plain and simple, if someone presented a different idea than yours, you'd just be like, oh, interesting, I disagree, goodbye. And then you just move on from the conversation. But we definitely don't do that. We uh, get frustrated, we get sad or offended or defensive or anxious. We think, but may not say things like, or maybe you do say things like, what an idiot, like how, how could they think that that's a good idea for our world or for our society? Or how could they believe that set of facts that makes them think this way? Um, someone else's ideas is more than just another opinion. It's a thing that reveals a wound or like a sensitivity that we have. We're hypersensitive to ideas about our country that we don't share and what it means for our world. Um, So think back, just as an example, to the issue of masks during COVID. Sorry to bring it up, people. (laughs) Uh, It was a political issue. Uh, In what way should we, our city, state, or nation, be ordered for the good of its people, the protection of its people? Some said we should wear masks to protect those that are more vulnerable to the virus. That's a good, loving thing to do. Others said we disagree that masks are necessary, either as a general rule, the people that are vulnerable shouldn't cause the liberty to be diminished for other people, or maybe they didn't believe the masks were effective. There are all sorts of thoughts that were thrown around. Um, but it, if it was just a disagreement, you could have said, oh, interesting, you think we should and you think we shouldn't. Okay, nice to meet you, let's, let's move on. But it definitely didn't end there. It went to like deep, mean places sometimes for people. I heard things like, uh, if you love Jesus, who told us to love our neighbors, you would wear a mask because that's the loving thing to do. Um, and I heard all sorts of other things from other people that we don't need to get into because you're already feeling like, please stop talking about this. <laughs> um, it's more than just another opinion. There's something about the other opinion that like does something to you or you're not just like, oh, information, interesting. You're like, oh, why are you saying this? Something's wrong with you. In the same way that your body would react to a food that you are allergic to, making your stomach hurt or something, or the same way that your nerves would fire up if you aggravate an injury, these intense emotions that we feel when the other side of the political spectrum pushes our buttons, it should indicate that something's going on. We should listen to that. So if you find yourself filled with anxiety or anger or frustration or despair, if you find yourself with feelings that maybe border on hatred or contempt towards another person or another group or even an ideology. If you find yourself thinking of people as if they were, I almost call them an enemy, this should indicate to us as people of Jesus that something is out of order. Our priorities, our loves are disordered if we're thinking about people this way. So for many, our existence in, our participation in, our commitment to this country that we live in is clouding our judgment and effect, negatively affecting our behavior towards other people. Now, you may be thinking, you did not need to take seven minutes to say that. We <laughs> already knew that. But as we are in the thick of uh, a heightened political season, it's not going away anytime soon. We're just getting started. This is my, uh, my chance to offer a pastoral word that I hope you would listen to, um, something that maybe could help ground us. Um, and help you engage in a more healthy way. Um, Something to maybe make it so that we can be steadfast in our love for Jesus, and steadfast in our identity and our love for others even, when we don't like what's happening in the world. So I'm gonna read um, from the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, if you're willing, by saying this, I'm gonna make you wanna do it, so I'm just gonna say it. Don't read ahead. Just open up to Philippians 3 if you want to, or you could just read what's on the screen. If you're like, I'm gonna read ahead, I'm gonna do it. Uh, Don't open your Bible, just look on the screen. Um, Because the passage doesn't seem like it's gonna have anything to do with what we're talking about right now, but it will get there. So, um, Philippians chapter three. We're gonna just take a few verses at a time. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. All day I've been reading this, just a side note. I've been hearing that in Trump's voice, and it's so funny. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, For it is we, that's just a helpful side note, it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul's telling this church, the Philippians, Look out for this group of people. They're influencing the Philippian church. They're trying to convert people to Judaism. Um, one of the main signs of Judaism uh, was circumcision. So there are many people who were circumcised. They followed the other laws of the Torah. And in doing so, following all these laws, they were showing their world, their culture, that they were good, that they were right. Not only holy, but honestly, it's like a version of being like in the right camp in culture they knew what was right what was wrong what was good for the world and because paul in many places has taught that our holiness and our goodness as people of jesus actually comes through jesus only through him circumcision doesn't have value anymore it's not the sign of a good person or all the following all the laws of torah those outward signs don't matter anymore so people are just essentially mutilating their flesh trying to show that they're good people cutting and harming for no good reason. So where they were boasting and they're following Jewish laws, Paul says, we boast in Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then, I love that Paul does this. I don't know if you've noticed it before. It's kind of funny. Uh, He's criticizing people for putting confidence in their flesh. And they're like, by the book, Jewishness. And he's like, it doesn't matter. But if it did matter, I would win this argument anyways. He's got even more cred in by the book, Jewishness. Verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He basically says, Whatever reason that these boastful Jews had for confidence in their outward holiness, he's like, I had more. I was better than you at your game and I'm not even playing it anymore. Um, he followed the law. He came from the right family. He worked harder at doing what they're doing. They're like persecuting the church in a way. And Paul's like, I did that better too than you. Um, but he knows that it was all worthless. Verse seven, whatever were gains to me Gains Like those outward signs of being a successful, good Jewish man. Whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him compared to what he found in Jesus. And he had everything. I don't know that we can put ourselves, like correctly put ourselves in his shoes, but to know that like in his day, in his time amongst his people, he was the guy, he was the man, he had it all put together. He was a Roman citizen, he was like an elite man of God in Israel, genuinely blameless and following the 613 some odd laws of the Old Testament. That was actually possible to not break any of them. He came from the right family, he worked hard for God, so he thought by working against those that he thought was against God. He had status, he lived right, he thought right, he believed the right things about the world and he did something about it. That's what Paul was doing. And now he says it was worthless compared to what he found in Jesus. And what he found was not his own goodness or his own righteousness, but Jesus's. And so he received from Jesus his status and his righteousness. It didn't come through living right or thinking the right way. It came through trust in Jesus, where he used to know all the right things. Now what he wants to know is the power of the resurrection of Jesus at work in his life. And he wants to know the opposite of the status that he had, which is sharing the shame and suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. He wants to, Paul, and he's telling us to do so as well, to experience both the power of the resurrection and participation in the humiliation of Jesus dying to himself. And in doing so, Paul says, we take hold of the life that God actually has for us here and now, eternal life. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He affirms, he's like, I'm not there yet. I'm a work in progress. But he doesn't let his past, which is a gnarly past, he doesn't let it stop him from pressing forward in his journey with Jesus. Verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. In other words, if you're smart, you're gonna think about this the way that I do, is what Paul's saying. And if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make it clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. He encourages people to think about what he's been saying in the whole letter, but particularly in this chapter. See the wisdom in it. He reminds them God's gonna help you understand things correctly and show you the truth. He says they can follow his example, follow the example of other people who are living like Paul was. And then he reminds them, he goes back to the people he's referring to at the beginning of this passage, the ones who were boasting in their obedience to Jewish law. He says their God is whatever they want. Their stomach represents kind of just their like base desires as humans. They take pride in things that should not bring pride. Their mind is set on earthly things, earthly status. They're thinking through the lens of like based on this time, this culture, this place where I live, these people around me, what will bring me like good standing and status and rightness and success? That's what setting their mind on earthly things looks like. And Paul brings it back, he said, their minds are set on the things of this earth, and now, if you, if you waited, good job. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So Philippi, the place where this church was, was an outpost of the Roman Empire. Um, It was under the rule and reign of Caesar, who was called, literally, Son of God. He was also called Lord and called Savior of the known world. So some of the Christians at this church in Philippi where Paul wrote this letter, they may have been actual citizens of Rome, which would have come with probably some measure of safety, rights, and privileges. And Paul at length in this chapter has just described how he has laid aside, set aside, um, and considered worth nothing his privilege and status as a good Jewish man. He had status, success, and credibility as a Jew. He was very, very good at it. And he just had finished explaining that it's worth nothing compared to knowing Jesus and having the status and goodness and righteousness that um, comes through Jesus. And so now he tells this people in this church to remember that they are, first and foremost, citizens of heaven, not Rome, Their identity, their status, the measure of whether they are good people who think rightly about the world does not get measured against Rome's ideas for what's good, but against the values of the kingdom of God. There's a Bible scholar named David Garland. He writes this. Roman colonies were set up as miniatures of Rome to foster the majesty of Roman culture, religion, and values. The Christian commonwealth has a different constitution and different laws, and Christians are to exemplify the values of the heavenly Rome. Christ's resurrection establishes a new city and an alternative political jurisdiction that challenges the values and the methods of the empire. The empire tyrannizes, enslaves, and crucifies its subjects. Christians are not to imitate the crucifiers, but the crucified one. They are to accept suffering rather than to inflict it. If one is conformed to the kings of this world, one is conformed to a way of death. If one is conformed to Christ, one is conformed to a way that brings life. So Paul is saying to this church and to us, make no mistake, he's saying it to us, our allegiance belongs to Jesus and his kingdom above anything else. Our salvation comes from King Jesus. Our transformation into the kind of people that are truly good and righteous comes only through Jesus. In the same way that he laid down, Paul laid down his goodness and his status for the true righteousness of Jesus, He's asking these Philippian Christians to lay down their desire and access to Roman status and privilege and the desire to be viewed as morally upright citizens of Rome. He says we belong to another country, to another kingdom, and I believe the Spirit of God, through these words of Paul, asks us in this moment to remember where our true citizenship is, and it is not the United States of America, but the kingdom of God. Now, you may hear me say that and think, yeah, I get it. Jesus is our first priority. If the government ever, like, asked me to sin, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't follow him, you know? Um, but that's like an extreme example that may or may not happen now. But there is a pervasive, and maybe it's subtle, maybe it's not so subtle way that we live as though we were primarily citizens of America rather than citizens of heaven. And it's the pursuit of and prioritization of what I'm calling American righteousness. I've, someone else may have said that already, maybe someone is going has said it better already somewhere else, but the per, pursuit and prioritization of American righteousness over and against the righteousness of Jesus. And the thing that reveals that this is happening is the pain when someone presses on the spot that is hurt or broken or sensitive. You may not know that you're doing it, until someone challenges what you think, or challenges your morality, your intelligence, challenges whether or not you care about people or our country. So for a Christian, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that sensitivity, being angered, or defensive, or anxious, or contemptuous towards others, reveals a disordered love, a misprioritization of allegiance. And it's the pursuit of what I'd call American righteousness. And by that, I mean holding and trying to demonstrate the values that cause an American to think of you as a good, intelligent person who cares about our country and answers that political question, how should our society be ordered in the right way? Now, there may be different versions of American righteousness. Depending on the crowd that you run with and where you live and are in the world, there's liberal and progressive versions. We can show up those signs and you're going to get instantly triggered when you see them. Um, I don't know which one of those signs represents you more, or maybe you feel like uh, neither sign. I don't like either of those. Um, My point is that for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, political morality yard signs portray the righteousness of a country that we do not belong to. So politics, what we think about how our society should be ordered, has become a prominent way that we demonstrate righteousness to the world that's watching. It's where your values and your wisdom and your goodness, or lack thereof, are on display. It's not just the question of how do you think our country should be ordered for the good of the citizens. It's become a question of, Do you care? Are you intelligent and wise? Are you a good person? Um, Hillary Clinton gave a speech in the early 90s at the University of Texas that has since been dubbed the politics of meaning. Um, And we're gonna read a a good portion of it. It's on the screen. Um, It's, I don't know, you can be the judge. I think it's incredibly profound based on when the speech was given in the early 90s and and where we are now. I'm just gonna start reading it. We are at a stage in history in which remolding society is one of the great challenges facing all of us in the West. If one looks around the Western world, one can see the rumblings of discontent, almost regardless of political systems as we come face to face with the problems that the modern age has dealt us. And if we ask, why is it in a country as wealthy as we are that there is this undercurrent of discontent, we realize that somehow economic growth and prosperity, political democracy and freedom are not enough. That we lack meaning in our individual lives and meaning collectively. We lack a sense that our lives are part of some greater effort, that we are connected to one another. This isn't very far below the surface because we can see it popping up through the surface the signs of alienation and despair and hopelessness that are all too common and cannot be ignored. The signs are in our living rooms at night on the news, they're on the front pages, they're in all of our neighborhoods. All of us face a crisis of meaning. Coming off the last years when the ethos of selfishness and greed were given places of honor never before accorded, it is certainly timely to ask about this problem. This problem requires all of us to play a role in redefining what our lives are and what they should be. We are caught between two great political forces. On the one hand, we have our economy, the market economy, which knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. That is not its job. And then the state or government, which attempts to use its means of acquiring tax money, making decisions to assist us in becoming a better, more equitable society. We have political and ideological struggles between those who think market economics are the answer to everything, and those who think government programs are the answer to everything, but neither is adequate to address the challenges confronting us. We're almost there. What we must do is break through the old thinking that has too long captured us politically and institutionally, so that we can begin to devise new ways of thinking about not only what it means to have government that works again, not only what it means to have economies that don't discard people like they're excess baggage that we no longer need, but to define our institutional and personal responsibilities in ways that answer this lack of meaning. We need a new politics of meaning. We need a new ethos of individual responsibility and caring. We need a new definition of civil society which answers the unanswerable questions posed by both the market forces and the governmental ones as to how we can have a society that fills us up again and makes us feel that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. I don't know if the gravity of what was in that speech has um, hit you, pretend it wasn't Hillary that said it if you don't like that you're reading Hillary Clinton at church. um, She was not the first person to say something like this. But she described in 1993 what has become the air that we are breathing. We are finding our meaning, our worth, or a lack of it in some way through the political system politics, how society should be ordered for the good of the people is far more than just an opinion that you have on what laws and rules are good. It's where we look for meaning. It's the arena for discovering and testing our wisdom and our goodness. So today, what you think about how society should be ordered could be considered one of the standards by which you would judge if there's a good, if, if, if a good person or not, if you're a wise person or not. Think about how quickly uh, you dismiss a person in your mind when you find out that they kind of represent the other side that you don't like. Barry, thank you, Kevin. I'm going to give both sides of this, so don't be mad at me. Well, you could be mad at me. So you meet someone, and they say something that clues you in, and you're like, ah, another self-righteous, woke person with a godless, liberal agenda. Remind me to stay clear. Or... Ah, another anti-science right-wing conspiracy theorist who thinks Trump is the second coming of Jesus. I'm gonna stay away. Like we make those statements pretty quickly in our minds. We kind of categorize people, write them off. We have a strong reaction when the other side kind of rears its head at us. We are sensitive. We are defensive. We are easily angered. Sometimes we are full of contempt for people who embody threats against our version of American righteousness. So if our idea idea of what is good for the world is challenged or threatened, if we feel like someone misunderstands us or places us in one of those extreme categories that we don't think that we're in, if someone thinks we're the problem, or that our ideas are bad or not smart, or that our ideas or opinions fail to promote goodness in the world, That's why this topic is so divisive, we're on edge. Our egos, our image, our desire to be seen as good people, as intelligent people, as caring people, it's all at stake, or so it seems. And it's threatened when politics comes up because we are valuing American righteousness over the righteousness that comes through Jesus. So to use the language from my passage in Philippians 3, We are, in a way, holding on to confidence in the flesh, an observable measurement of goodness that people should be able to see, to know that person knows what's what. They're wise, they're smart, they're caring. Our minds are set on earthly things, earthly American cultural morality, and it is not what Jesus wants for us. The whole point of this third chapter of Philippians, much of the whole letter, Paul is saying, I've done something that you should also do. I've laid down my desire to be seen as good, right, righteous, successful in the eyes of our culture. Because remember, he had it all in his Jewish culture. He had every reason to be confident in the status and the image that he had. He was morally upright. He was involved in his community. He was a God fearing Jew who knew what was good. He had the, in a sense, political and moral high ground. And yet, he considers it all to be utter garbage compared with what he has found in Jesus. And he invites us to think like him, to do what he's done, to let go of our focus on earthly things, let go of our desire to be seen as virtuous in the American eyes or as intelligent, to let go of the moral high ground in the eyes of our culture, and to remember where we are from. It's like he's saying, pull out your passport, and take a look at it. Where are you from? You may have a visa to be here where you are for a while, but your homeland is the kingdom of God. You are citizens of the realm of King Jesus, and the only thing that matters is what he says. Whatever he says is good is good. And the only righteousness that matters is that of Jesus that he gives us. I think one of the um, harder I would say the hardest thing about preaching for me is having an like true, accurate pulse on you, people, or culture in general. I think it's again the most challenging part for me, and I think it separates like excellent Bible teachers from just average ones. Um, is the ability to like talk about your world in a way that makes you go, "Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way." He's so totally right, you know. Um, so this for me is a swing that I'm taking. I don't know as I'm talking about this if you're like, yeah, I I see that, I feel that, or if you're like, "Uh, I don't know. Um, As a culture, I really think that we are wrapped up in this idea of American righteousness, desiring to be seen as virtuous and good to a watching world. We carry this political injury or sensitivity We may not feel the pain all the time. The nerve might not get touched all the time, but sure enough, every two years, every four years, the nerve gets touched and the pain point is pressed on and it should reveal something to you and to me. I think it reveals that we care deeply about how our society perceives us and perceives how we think. If we didn't care so deeply about it, I don't know that it would bring out the strong emotions and reactions that it tends to do. And if you don't have like big, loud, outward reactions, you're not off the hook because inward seething and bitterness and contempt is equally strong and equally indicative of this uh, mindset. And so I'd like to remind you of a few things. some truth to wash our minds maybe a little bit. It's like a a pre-trip inspection before we move on into the kind of heart of the political season. First, uh, the values of the kingdom of God, the things that Jesus cares about, will never fit into a party, a candidate, or a vote. Or I should maybe should say, never neatly or perfectly fit. It is impossible. You will always sacrifice one value for another, one value of the kingdom for another when you're participating in our political system. It doesn't mean that you should abstain from the process, but that you should participate humbly. And remember that American politics is not where you, a person of Jesus, demonstrate how wise or how righteous you are. We lay down that as rubbish compared to what Jesus says about us. Second thing, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. These are both quotes from Paul in Corinthians. Sometimes, not always, there will be things that the world calls good that are not. Or there may be things that the scriptures define as good that our culture will just not understand. It won't make sense. And if we're citizens of heaven, whose definition do we align with? On that note, the final thing, is to put on the mind of Christ. That's what Paul says earlier in Philippians 2, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's telling you, think like Jesus. I don't know if you have thought about this very much. I think we should think about it all the time. Our goal is to think about everything the way that Jesus does. To become like Jesus doesn't just mean we try to do things that Jesus did, or try to not do the things he didn't do, or not do the things that he told us not to do. It means that we attempt to think and feel about our world as He does. We love the things that He loves. We hate the things that He hates, which is never people. We are saddened by the things that sadden our Lord. So to be a a disciple of Jesus, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God under King Jesus means that every area of your life, every area of your life is under His Lordship what we do, what we don't do, and what we think about how this country should be ordered for the good of the people in it. That too is subject to Jesus and His Lordship in our life. And that's an incredibly complex concept because we don't know. Sometimes we think that we know. Sometimes we want to reduce it and make it simple, but it is anything, if not anything except simple. It's important to remember the order of our allegiance and our love. It's Jesus first, he's the king. What he values is what we value. Now we may sometimes have an idea of how kingdom values could take shape in our society. And it's okay to want that and to carefully step forward in that if you think you understand how that could work. Um, but we also, I think maybe more often than not, we'll know the kingdom value we have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the words of Jesus. We know what the kingdom of God is supposed to create in us, but we won't know if or how it could take shape where we live in America. And we get restless and anxious. We think, I know what Jesus loves, and I just wanna make it so here, or however much we understand the values of Jesus. We're trying to force things here. We're getting anxious and frustrated when we, when we don't know how that is done, we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's ways are not our ways. This country is not the kingdom of God, but the church is. Where God's people gather is where you can expect kingdom values to be lived out and on display, this room, this church family. In the same way that Philippi was an outpost of the Roman Empire, Valley Church is an outpost of the kingdom of God and when we gather, we become like sovereign soil in a foreign land and we can embody the love of King Jesus for one another, regardless of how little or how much our country values what Jesus does. So, last thing, like 30 seconds. a Couple things you might need to do, like right now or very soon. You might need to make things right with a brother or sister in Christ if um, politics has got in the way of your union with Jesus. If you've had some type of falling out, some arguments that got like a little heavy, you're just like, ooh, that was not good. Um, I think it's a huge shame, maybe even a scandal, for Christians to divide over what we think about a country that actually is not our primary allegiance. So maybe you have some work to do to repair and restore something with a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe you need to abstain from the political process this season. Not voting is not a sin. And it's not a sin to take a break from being politically informed. Maybe it's just become so complex and convoluted and you're just full of anxiety or anger or frustration and you don't know how to fix it and maybe it's just time to say lord will you can we take a break you and me from trying to understand what's happening right now that would be okay maybe you need to engage in the political process this year maybe you have been checked out or cynical and maybe this is the time for you to enter in soaked in prayer dedicated to the values of Jesus and being an advocate for how those could look in our world. And maybe, rather than being anxious and defensive, uh, you could be generous and find the goodness, find the values of the kingdom where they do exist, even in people that you disagree with sometimes. Maybe that's how you engage this year. The last thing for all of us um, It's one of the simplest commands in Scripture with like a 100% success rate promised, is ask for wisdom. Because Jesus says He'll give it to us if we ask. So I don't know what you need to do, I don't know what you're thinking about, if this has made you more anxious talking about it in church or if you feel like you kinda know how you've been and maybe how things need to look different in this next season, but all of us can ask for wisdom. So we're gonna do that right now, we're gonna pray. Lord, we are your people, your children, and we confess that we do not know how to take what you love and what you value and to lay it over this country that we live in. Sometimes we think we know and we just confess that we are prideful and we admit that we don't know and, that, and we need your wisdom. So you tell us to ask. We are asking as your children, please give us wisdom in this moment and for this season, to be the exact people that you would like us to be for the sake of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.